Hello, everyone, and welcome, finally, to episode number 46 of The Audra Show. This is your host, Audra Laquadera, and um, I have to apologize for the long delay between episode number 45, which was posted in July, and this one, which was recorded in July, but is being posted today, September 19th. Um, my guest for this episode was Joshua North Shea, who is the sexton at the 6th Avenue United Church of Christ here in Denver. Uh, we had a uh, three-hour discussion that probably could have gone on for another three hours. So that's part of the reason for delay, just a large amount of editing that had to take place to uh, make this a little bit more manageable than um, three hours. And that took some doing. Um, I also, of course, went on a week-long vacation in the meantime, which was awesome, and I will tell you a little bit about it in a minute. But just in terms of the conversation with Joshua, um, you know, there might be uh, some jumps or uh, some references that uh, don't necessarily make sense. I tried not to cut out things that explained other things later on, but uh, there are probably a few things that uh, may not make sense. Uh, just go with it, if you would, or, um, you know, obviously feel free to get in touch with me with any questions, or, or Joshua, who will be tagged in the post. Um, you know, there was a lot we didn't get to, but we did get to go a little bit deeper on some topics like spirituality versus religion and, uh, you know, his, his um, identification as a Christian anarchist. Um, so that was a very interesting conversation for me. And, you know, I found the whole thing rather interesting. So hopefully you will, too. And uh, there may also be, um, regardless of editing, there's probably a few conversations or threads that, um, you know, probably don't come to a complete close. <laughs> um, you know, and there's definitely some, some questions that I wish I had asked that I just didn't think of in the moment as the conversation was happening. So, um, I don't know if um, all of it will make perfect sense or sound completely uh, rational, um, but if there's any comments or feedbacks or questions, again, just uh, please feel free to get in touch with me. You can find The Audra Show on Facebook, iTunes, Podbean, uh, Twitter, and at oddlack.com slash The Audra Show, or email me at theaudrashow at gmail. Yeah, I would love to hear some feedback. Uh, so as far as Denver is going, I'm totally loving it. Again, still doing lots of hiking and camping. And um, my week-long vacation was great. My niece and nephew, my sister's children, Kara and Luke, her two oldest children, came out. Um, and we drove to Moab and went to Arches. We went to Bryce. Zion National Park, where we camped right outside of the park and then camped inside the park. So that was awesome. That was a, a bucket list item for me to sleep inside of Zion. And it was awesome. We even uh, <laughs> we made our way down to the Grand Canyon since we were so close. We weren't going to. Um, and we went on this one little hike 
right near the visitor center. That was <laughs> very sketchy for me. I was going very slowly and hanging out with the uh, 70-year-old women who were just as scared as I was. And um, But I did, I did do it. Um, so we got one nice view of the Grand Canyon, took a few pictures. I ran off that trail as quickly as possible. And then we got on the scenic drive around the North Rim, which is, I think, about a 23-mile drive. We got about two miles in, and it's about maybe five miles to the first lookout. We're two miles in, flash hailstorm, <laughs> crazy hail. Like, we had to pull over. It was so bad, and the road, of course, was curvy and, uh, you know, windy and stuff, no shoulders or anything like that. So, you know, everybody's just kind of stopped dead. And then the road is, like, flooding. I, there's rocks, debris. Other people are coming back. So, you know, we didn't even know what we were getting into, I, except for more curvy windiness, uh, windiness. So we headed back, and... Uh, once we got back, they were closing that road. So that was our trip to the Grand Canyon. It was kind of the uh, you know vacation version. There it is, Russ. All right, let's go. <laughs> then after that, we saw Monument Valley. We saw Four Corners. We saw Mesa Verde National Park back here in Colorado and Durango, which was awesome. Went on a little uh, rafting trip down there. And uh, we stopped at Mount Princeton Hot Springs on the way back, uh, which was interesting. I have to say I had heard really great things about it. And basically, it was like a pool, like two regular pools, like you would find in any public place, that were just hot <laughs> instead of cold or room temperature or whatever. They were 90 degrees and 105 degrees. And then there was like this creek that was cold but there was these little tiny pools of hot within it so I don't know I mean we didn't see the entire thing but we were a little confused as I think were some other people as one couple in the pool was like uh this is just a regular pool right <laughs> this guy this guy goes this is a racket right I'm like I, I think I think it might be I'm not 100% positive but yeah that was an amazing um dream trip and um when the kids were younger i decided i told them that uh actually my niece kara and i sort of decided that we were gonna start a travel fund so instead of giving them shirts or clothes or gift cards or something you know they'll outgrow or forget about i'm just gonna put money aside and um when kara and luke turned 18 i told them you know the travel fund <laughs> was now available and it didn't have to, they didn't have to travel with me. They just had to use the money for travel. That was the only stipulation, not for stuff. So I'm very uh, grateful and happy that they did want to travel with me. So um, we had an awesome time. And uh, yeah, that was great. So um, considering that I didn't, I got uh, my conversation with Joshua down to only about an hour and a half, I'm going to keep my intro uh, relatively short. Um, again, I uh, hope you find this conversation with Joshua North Shea as interesting as I did. And again, if you have any questions or any comments or feedback about it, uh, please feel free to let me know. I would love it. All right. Thank you again for listening. And uh, we'll be chatting with you again soon. Do, 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 musical interlude. Historically, uh, Sexton is someone who uh, lives at and takes care of a parish. Right. Uh, often taking care of the cemetery. 
which we do not have a cemetery. Right. As I realized on our little tour that we just took. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but over time, the role kind of evolved and took on different activities like caring for sacred objects, helping to set up for worship. Okay. In my case, I am the building manager or caretaker and also the office manager. Okay. So I do contracts and scheduling and change light bulbs and clean toilets and update the website and graphic design, printing, and everything. And obviously take care of the actual structure itself as we were Mm -hmm. just looking at your work cleaning graffiti off the (laughs) side of the church. Yes, and uh, managing construction projects. And well, I'm also the first point of contact for anybody that walks in. All right, so let's take a step back here. So we met through Lyft, picked you up here one night. We had a very lively conversation about all kinds of things. And so I just thought that you would make an interesting podcast guest. So thank you again. Um, So tell us a little bit about, like, give me, like, your 10-second life story. Like, how, how did you end up in this field and at this church? So I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. And... At that time, my dad was working uh, in private practice as a psychotherapist, okay. and my mom was teaching junior high school, and they were actually featured in the Lincoln Star newspaper, Yeah, um, and so was I and my little brother, because they were ostensibly trying to make a radically egalitarian partnership. Then when I was seven, my mom got into Yale Divinity School. Okay. And we moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and she got her MDiv, um, I guess, when she was 36. Masters of Divinity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then we moved out to Colorado, where she took a large church, and my dad continued working as a psychotherapist, although ultimately he mostly went between teaching psychology yeah. and running psych departments in Supermax penitentiaries. Oh, wow. That must have been interesting work (laughs) to say the least yeah so i've been inside of a number of prisons oh really in nebraska and colorado and wyoming you would go with him Mm -hmm. yep and do what well (laughs) take your kid to work day (laughs) (laughs) did you like talk to prisoners and Mm -hmm. hang out with them and stuff some yeah just like while your dad was in session with somebody else or no no he would just give me a tour of the facility and Oh. Show me where he worked. And oh, okay. Give me some advice. <laughs> <laughs> Scare you straight. <laughs> right. So I grew up in the church um, as a pastor's kid, right. which is kind of like being in the wings. If you if you have a parent who is a, a stage performer or some something like that. Okay. So you have kind of a different take on the play. The oh, suspension okay. of disbelief is not there. So either you end up being really sincere about it or you end up dismissing it altogether. Right. I guess that makes sense. And you are, I would assume, sincere about it, considering your line of work. I am now. Uh, So when I was 15, I left high school, and I went to Guatemala. Oh, wow. And I was there for a few months, and then I just did not go back to high school. And what was your reason for going to Guatemala? uh, I had just a really strong attraction to Central and South America, Okay. And I wanted to see the jungle, and I started having a series of really vivid dreams about it. Really? And I just, I felt strongly compelled to go. To go. To and go. so did you announce that to your parents? 
at I, 15? I did. And uh, they, they strongly discouraged me from leaving high school. <laughs> I would and, imagine. And they strongly discouraged me from hitchhiking to Guatemala <laughs> with no money. <laughs> yeah, I could see why a parent might actually discourage that. Um, but you did it anyway. Well, I, so we compromised somewhat, and I ended up uh, going under the auspices of a Habitat for Humanity trip. Oh, okay. So Which was a little bit more uh, legit. Yeah, but that I was guess. only a week of my time there. Okay, but it was a good excuse to get there. Right. Okay, so they agreed to let you go mm-hmm. with Habitat for Humanity, and then you obviously stayed past the week. Well, I yeah, I went before and I stayed after. And what did you do there? I learned Spanish, un poquito, <laughs> and I um, spent time in the jungle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And spent some time on the Caribbean. Uh, I met the guerrilla in the highlands of Guatemala. The guerrilla? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not familiar. Militant uh, resistance forces. Okay. Ex-farmers whose land had been taken by the national police. Oh, wow. Who therefore become radicalized uh, militantly anti-national police. Right. <laughs> and so what... What happened there? Were you, did you get involved with them, or you just were working with them on their farms? Or uh, no, they they were no longer working on farms because they no longer had property. Oh, the, the state right. the state killed their family and took their property. Oh my god! So, as a result, they they lived in the jungle with Kalishnikovs. Wow! And you just um, stayed with them. So I I encountered them uh, both indirectly and directly. The the local people of Guatemala are very much aware of what goes on politically, and there's a lot of uh, state propaganda. Okay. And the uh, the guerrilla are are militant, but they haven't been actively violent for a very long time. Okay. And was um, that the case when you were there at 15? Also. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're just they're they're holding a line. All right. They're just very fiercely saying that what's going on is not okay. Okay, that's fair enough. We do not accept the fact that you killed our family and took our homes. That kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, they asked me to be really clear that they do not hate Americans. Okay. But that they hate the American government because of the CIA School of the Americas and our want to uh, install puppet dictatorships in Central and South America so that we can gather up all of their resources for ourselves. Yeah, I could see why that would cause hatred <laughs> of our government but they're but they're very concerned that uh the american people become aware of this okay and how are they i mean i i don't think they are clearly i'm not right. <laughs> i mean not that i'm uh, certainly not an expert on any of these things but I'd, i don't I, think the average american is aware of that i don't know all. i don't know what the answer is right but uh, the School of the Americas is a training institute at Fort Benning, and uh, they train foot soldiers. And it's also broadly kind of a code word for the CIA operations that go on to like stage coups and stuff like that. School of the Americas is? The School of the Americas, yeah. You never heard of it? No, I haven't actually. No, I mean, I've heard surprised. of the CIA putting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, puppet regimes and That's that what sort they of do. thing. Yeah. Okay, so. You're hanging out with these guys in the jungle, mm-hmm. and like, what, what, what goes on there? What are you doing with them? Not much. Just talking. Ha- just hanging out. Yeah, talking. And are you feeling like you're fulfilling your dreams of being in the jungle and all this? I mean, how is it? How are you feeling about being in Guatemala? It was 
wonderful. Yeah. I felt, I felt so affirmed. For one thing, when I was living in the U.S., I felt that my mindset was very radical and strange. And I also felt very mature for my age. Yeah, I was going to say that's a big thing to be thinking about at 15. But being in Guatemala, I was at least a head taller than everyone. <laughs> okay. And so everyone across the board assumed that I was like 30 or 40. Yeah, not 15. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was actually kind of cool. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had I had hair like down in the middle of my back and yeah, a really long beard. <laughs> At fifteen, you <laughs> had a long beard. Yeah, I think you were you were mature, obviously. Um, so how long did you end up being in Guatemala? Uh, just for a few months. Okay, and then you came back home, and and then what? Did you go back? You didn't go back to school, I assume. I didn't. Or? I um, I spent time at the the cafe and at the university library um, talking to people and reading. Okay. I kind of came up with my own program. I did take some classes at the community college. I also did some life drawing and drawing classes. Yeah. And some kind of different things. Uh, a couple of my friends had a lot of uh, chemical apparatus, so we did some lab work. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Mostly like trying to make explosives and stuff like that. <laughs> Some lab work. Okay. Uh, Most uh, high school <laughs> teenage guys would, yeah, just call that trying to make stuff explode. Right. I love the, <laughs> the fact that you had the whole setup that one. We're doing lab work. Uh, yeah, we should have died. But um, Oh, really? Did you? I, I assume you were successful in causing <laughs> some explosions. Right. Um, but I also... I did some more tame stuff. Like I, I called up the book bindery and asked them if I could come over and, and they showed me how to bind a book. Wow. So I, I bound a book. Yeah. That kind of thing. And then, so now, but you also now have a master's of divinity, correct? Right. So, so, so how did that come about? I, it was a huge surprise to me that when I was 18, uh, when I was 17, I decided that in fact I did want to go to college. Okay. That is surprising. And I wasn't sure if I could even do it but because but I did because I didn't have a GED or anything you had like half a high school education but they accepted you yeah was that a community school or was that that was uh St. John's College in Santa Fe New Mexico oh okay which is the second oldest school in the country I think after William and Mary and so they were just like all right no worries that you didn't graduate high school we'll take you uh I mean I so I, I wrote an essay and I met with them on a on a couple of occasions they asked me to make a list of books that I had read okay. since I had told them that I had been reading. Nice. Uh, and, and binding. Did you tell them <laughs> you had been binding books as well? Sure. Um, and so I did. I put together a rather long list, including both books that I had read and also books <laughs> from the bibliographies of books that I had read. <laughs> okay. So I felt somewhat confident that I had at least a clue what the books were about. <laughs> <laughs> Part of that book was used in this book. Okay. Well, it was it was a real challenge because I hadn't been recording what I was doing at all. Did you tell them about your months in Guatemala and all that as like life experience and stuff? Sure. Okay. Of course. So, did did you end up graduating there? No, I just uh, I did a year there, and uh, my parents went through a divorce during that year. Okay. And so I didn't have any money. Okay. I didn't have any financial support at all. I tried working while I was going to school there, and it was too hard. And I wasn't making enough money to do it. Yeah. So I left. And then 
just kind of bounced around for a while. I audited or actually enrolled in classes at different schools just to kind of continue my education and worked on my art. And uh, then eventually, when I was 23, I decided to go back and finish my bachelor's. Okay. Because I realized that most of the things that I wanted to do or might want to do would require me to have a master's. And usually, you have to have a bachelor's in order to do <laughs> graduate level well, work. Usually, you have to have a high school <laughs> degree in order to go to college, too. But right. things have not gone the usual course for, for you, it seems, sounds like. Okay, so... So, so, so we, at this point, you're thinking most of the things you want to do that involve a master's. Are you thinking about something like this, like a master's of divinity, or what kinds of things were you thinking about at that point? I mean, it was clearly something that I knew about, but I was I was wanting to do art or possibly architecture. Okay. I went to a inexpensive uh, state school up in the mountains, Western State, now university, then college, and I just took the opportunity to make art for three years. So I, I got a degree in, in painting and art history. So what kind of art were you making? Oil paintings. Oil paintings. Mm-hmm. And is that, uh, are you still doing those kinds of things today? Show and tell. Show and tell time. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We've got some postcards. I did an art project called Who is Nellie Bly uh, on the occasion of my daughter entering kindergarten and her mother deciding that uh, she was going to be making executive decisions about our children's education and that we were not in fact going to be properly co-parenting. Okay. Um, So in lieu of being able to homeschool or partially homeschool my children, uh, I decided to start doing other stuff. So I did this art project, um, which consists of 12 Uh, icons of revolutionary American women from the turn of the century, all born between 1860 and 1890. And so there we've got Jane Addams and Ida B. Wells, Emma Goldman, and Margaret Sanger. Those are all on oak panels with gold leaf halos. And so what was your intention behind this to, to teach your daughter? My intention was to lift up historical women and point out the fact that American history is not unbiased. What do you mean? Well, when I started this project, I spoke with famous feminists and professors in women's departments at major universities. Yeah. And everyone had a hard time naming five important historical women from America. Really? Yes. <laughs> they. <laughs> everybody That's... had like one or two or maybe three. Right. And then there was long pause. Really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, especially coming off of the whole discussion about, you know, putting women on currency. And so you said you, you had done 12 of these? Yes. And so how did you come up with the 12? It was just a combination of the different women that people have said? And well, so at, at first, I wasn't sure how to kind of frame it. I knew that I wanted to do historical women um, and include some that people would have heard of and some that people would not have heard of. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I, these names really are all maybe like passing familiarity. Mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger maybe is the one I've heard of the most, but I couldn't tell you what she is famous for mm-hmm. um, of the four that you just mentioned. Right. And so it's just a, it's a cool educational tool. And it's also just a really great way of demonstrating my affection for women. Yeah. And my belief that women are awesome and that <laughs> they it is it is not the case that women did not have important roles in American history right it's just the case that nobody has acknowledged them. <laughs> right 
I mean, that, that is really fascinating, though, that you've asked people in women's departments that could not come up with three. I mean, I hope you went back and followed up with them afterwards and was like, well, I came up with 12. <laughs> so, well, I came up with a lot, much more. a lot more than 12, yeah. And so I, I narrowed it down to American women just because I had to start coming up with criteria. Yeah. And I didn't want to just pick people that I liked. Right. Um, I wanted to be somewhat objective about it. Okay. Um, so narrowing it down to American women narrowed it down a lot. Uh, and then I narrowed it down to women born between 1860 and 1890 because I found that in that range, there was a lot of photography of these women. Okay. Whereas, you know, your Susan, your Susan B. Anthony or your Harriet Tubman, there's some photographs, but it's either photographs of them when they're very old or uh, portraits of them because they were very rich. So there's a class bias there, uh, but you have to get into the turn of the century before photography becomes common enough that there could be multiple photos and I can choose what images I want to use instead of having to use the only image right. that's out there. Okay. And then it's also like, well, that image is already there. Right. So why? So no point in recreating it. Right. And then an, another interesting thing about this era is that all of the photography is black and white. Yeah. So I had to do research to try and figure out what color their hair and eyes and clothes were. Right. Um, but I also avoid the other problem, which is if I do later women, then for one thing, we don't actually know their place in history, particularly if they're still alive. Oh, you mean it hasn't been determined yet? Right. Um, okay. And also their uh, images of them may be copyrighted. Or oh. their families may not. Yeah, you like can't just it. recreate it. So, yeah, anyway, they're all images in the public domain, and there's lots of them. Right. So I thought that was a. And where do they live today? Where are all these paintings now? Uh, some of them have been purchased, okay. and so they are here and there. Some right. of them have been gifted, and some of them are in my apartment. Oh. Very nice. And so have you done other projects that were, you know, meant to inspire your kids? Yes, but the most of the paintings that I do, I'm just doing because I'm a painter. Right. Right now I'm working on some close-up images of peonies. Peonies, the flower? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And right. Yeah, and when it's real close-up, it's very abstract, too. So, yeah, I still, I still paint and make things. Do you sell your paintings and show them and stuff like that? Or is it just kind of... Occasionally, free? yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to make it my livelihood right now, although I always am thinking, should I? Maybe I should. It's nice. I mean, if it's an option. Right. But it seems like you're enjoying your life here. How long have you been here at this church? Uh, just a few years. And so how did we get the Masters of Divinity? Did we get that far earlier? And, and what made you... What, what made you change directions, do you think? I mean, going from where you were saying you didn't really believe in it when you were younger to now wanting to follow that path. So it's not that I, I, I mean, I always kind of had this feeling like, well, the teachings of Jesus make sense. That's great. Okay. But I was also interested in a lot of other faith traditions and spiritual practices. And it, it was actually while I was at Western that, and it was the same kind of impulse. Like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and finish my degree because I'd been kind of exploring this and that and just kind of free floating. Yeah. And it, it was that same kind of impulse, I think. And I, I realized that to really make progress in my understanding and my practice, it would probably be helpful to make a decision 
and to just go ahead and be a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim or whatever I decided to do. Yeah. But not try to be like a Sufi Buddhist, Socratic, you know, whatever. Okay. Because it's it's too complicated and confusing. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So so I decided to follow Jesus because I really do have a lot of respect for the man and his teachings and also uh, that's what my ancestors had decided to do for many generations. Um, And I also felt that I could provide an alternative voice and that the teachings of Jesus were being very vocally kind of twisted and and appropriated for other uh, means, yeah. Different weird stuff. Okay, so you felt like you could kind of cut through that a little bit? Yeah, I was, I was kind of hoping to, to be able to say, well, okay, if I identify as a Christian, then that gives me a stronger position to say, no, that's not what this is about. Okay. This isn't about, like, terrifying people yeah. into, like, towing the line. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which it definitely, I mean... It, ha- it is sometimes. Ha- yeah. ...has become in a lot of places, a lot of ways. And I, and I did think about pursuing some form of ministry at that time, but it was... It was not for a few years until I came back to that and started thinking about chaplaincy. And at that time, I was specifically thinking about military chaplaincy or possibly at a VA or something of that nature, which I am still considering. Okay. I've done clinical work in chaplaincy, and I intend on pursuing that if I can. I tried to get a residency this year, which is the last thing that I need to complete my hours and I did not get one. So it's another year out at least. Okay. And things could go a different direction. So, and then that was, was that a residency for military chaplaincy? Uh, No, at a hospital. Oh, okay. um, At St. Anthony over in Lakewood here. But I ended up getting my master's in divinity through Chicago Theological Seminary, which at the time was in this beautiful neo-Gothic building um, that the University of Chicago was actually built around. Oh, okay. Um, it has since moved. It, in fact, it moved at the same time that I did. I was there for two years, and then a number of incidents occurred which resulted in me moving with the kids to a commune in North Carolina. Interesting. <laughs> so, oh. No, not interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, it was very interesting. And I'm very, very happy that the kids were able to have that experience. How old were the kids at this point? Um, two and four. All right. So what, so what was that like? How many people were on the commune? Um, 70 in the winter and maybe 250 in the summer. Oh, really? Lots, just... lots of internships and natural building and permaculture and stuff like that. Permaculture. What is that? Permaculture is a type of agriculture that is trying to work with the natural systems or microecologies. Okay. Um, it's sort of the opposite of your monocultural crop planting that needs to have like chemicals and yeah, okay. has to be replanted every year. Um, you kind of you try and build a, a garden right. that takes care of itself. Oh, okay. As much as as feasible as possible for that to happen. Yeah. So people would just come for the summer months, like. For mm-hmm. their like summer vacation, like I'm gonna go live on a commune for the summer, or a bunch of hippie kids and okay, uh, and hippie grownups, <laughs> people, people who are interested in in permaculture or natural yeah. building or intentional community. Um, you get your occasional writer or um, somebody doing doctoral work and community building or how do you, how do you like find a commune? Uh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
talk, to, talk it to people. Okay. I mean, it's just so, I've never yeah. really so this is, spent time on one. This is Earth Haven Eco Village outside of Black Mountain, North Carolina. Okay. And now you found out about it. There you go. I can just look it up online or just show up or? You can look it up online. I would recommend that you don't just show up, although you can. Okay. It would be a little bit tricky to find, though, probably. Right. So, I mean, do you, like, make a reservation? <laughs> yeah. So, there. I mean, there are people that are kind of like the front-line contact people. Okay. And you talk to them. And, I mean, it, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you just want to go out and see it, then I could give you the name of somebody that you can <laughs> that would show you around. <laughs> right. But if I want to go live there for the summer, I then, just... Then, yeah, you'd want to decide why of what you were doing okay that's good i mean it's yeah. i don't know that i realized it was you know n that organized i mean not that i have a clue about any of this i mean but it's it's I think actually people just think of it as like a hippie place where people can wander on and be like oh okay i need a place to live so i'm gonna stay here i think that happens once in a while okay and so you're on the commune sounds like for what about a, a year a couple years uh just for about six eight months almost a year i don't remember okay but we moved uh into town we moved into Asheville ultimately because um it was feeling very isolated really that's yeah. interesting and i also encountered some kind of like uh eco fundamentalism what do you mean so sometimes this thing can happen where you have a fundamentalist background as a christian or something like that okay and then you so, so wholeheartedly reject it that you, like, fiercely hate it. <laughs> but you, you, you take the same style of thinking about right. the world and just apply it to this new worldview that you made up. Right. To the opposite of what you thought before. Um, and that can get kind of weird. So there was, there was some struggles around some stuff like that. My last year of Divinity School was accomplished online over a period of five years. Oh, wow. Uh, they did not have an online program when I left CTS. Okay. But they were thinking about having one. So I asked them if they would go ahead and think about it really seriously. <laughs> <laughs> really hard. <laughs> okay. So I guess that worked. Yeah. So I took some classes uh, at the Eco Village and also in Asheville while I was working as an auto mechanic. Okay. And then here after well once my kids started school in Greeley I decided to bite the bullet and move back to Colorado okay uh, terrified that I was going to end up following my ex-wife around the country <laughs> for the <laughs> remainder of my days your days I could see that being terrifying um in general but I love my kids yes clearly so I moved back to Colorado and uh tried to decide where to live and it was the flood that brought me to Denver Oh, really? Actually. A couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, when I moved back to Colorado, I was living in Allen's Park. Where's which that? It's on Highway 7, halfway between Boulder and Estes. Okay. So way up in the mountains. And all of the roads were impassable, as it turned out, <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> they weren't when I decided to do that. So you, like as you were like moving there? Yeah. The, <laughs> okay. The flood happened like... A week before I arrived. Oh, wow. Uh, so I ended up driving all the way down the long way uh, through Blackhawk and Golden and then back up 25 to okay. get to Greeley. Okay. Um, every week, oh, wow. which is 
I mean, what should have been less than an hour was like a seven hour drive. Oh my God. Each way. How long did the flood last? Well, the flood didn't last very long, but the the damage, the damage lasted a long time. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Months and months and months. Yeah. All of the major highways were completely destroyed. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even, I didn't even realize that. It was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, However, I ended up going to Denver a lot more than I would have otherwise. Right. Because it was now on the way. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe I should just see if I can find a place in Denver. And I did. And here you are. Yeah. So I, uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time, Sophia, and our rabbit, Basho. So a Flemish giant, which is like a 25-pound rabbit. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and we lived over on Poets Row in Capitol Hill. Okay. And I found this church, and I found my site to do my clinicals and chaplaincy pretty quickly. Everything just kind of fell into place. Great. So I felt really good about it. And so this is your, what you're doing full time. Right. Right. So in order to get into ministry in the UCC and in order to graduate from a seminary like CTS, uh, some things need to happen. One of which you need to do clinical hours in chaplaincy. Okay. And that was done. Another, you have to do uh, field education, which has to be some kind of nonprofit work, usually at a church um, under the supervision of someone who is ordained. Right. Uh, w- and I could not do that here because at the time we had an interim pastor. Oh. And so I asked Jack if I could do that, and he said, no, you have to wait until they find a pastor. But our administrative assistant slash caretaker is moving to I don't remember where he was moving to Belize or something (laughs) okay (laughs) he was called to Belize (laughs) well this is actually the first time in the history of the church as far as I know that the caretaker has been a member of the church you mean you yeah oh really yeah so it was just normally somebody who is just had no affiliation with the church and was just here as a job exactly that's interesting Mm mm-hmm so I did my field education here, and now I am in discernment here. That's, that's another piece that's a requirement. You have to have a home church for a year, okay. and then you have to do a year of what they call now in discernment, where you have a little committee and you write a paper and okay, this and that. Um, so that's what you're doing now. So I'm doing that. Um, and what is your paper on? My spiritual journey. Okay. And UCC polity. Polity? Polity. What does that mean? The, the Consti- United Church Constitution and organization of like the rules. Oh, okay. Rules and regulations. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I, I do too much <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> I, I do preach occasionally. I did two weddings last year. Oh, really? One in Costa Rica and one in Los Angeles. Really? Were they friends or people you mm-hmm. knew? Yeah. So you are qualified to do weddings? but you're not like fully ordained? I am qualified to do weddings through the Universal Life Church. Oh, okay. Is that online? Yep. So, all right. So it's not necessary. Those are two separate tracks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And yeah, so I I got online and like five minutes later, I was ordained as a Jedi Knight. And I was like, well... Yeah, I was going to ask you. (laughs) That would have been a lot easier it's like <laughs> to go that fifteen dollars in five minutes. Oh, really? Instead of like to be a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in 
seven years or whatever. Are, are Jedi's qualified to marry people? Yes. <laughs> they are? Yes. Wow. I'm I've never heard that. I'm surprised more people are not married by Jedi Knights. Right. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty that have been. I'm sure there are. Yeah. It's like a several. legal binding union say like we were married by a Jedi Knight. Yes. <laughs> really? Yes. Awesome. Federally <laughs> 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 recognized around the country. It is, yeah, uh, because it's under the auspices of the Universal Life Church, which is oh, okay, the major body for online instant ordinations. So you can just choose under Universal Life Church, like ha yeah. what yeah, you your sort of Wicca denomination or, is. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Jedi Knights just like a denomination of the Universal Life Church. It's a title. A title. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a title. There were no special qualifications or tests. Well, for that? No. I'm I am devoted to doing good and standing with the oppressed and right. Defending the underdog. Okay. So that's I assume your your journey. Yeah, that brings us uh pretty much to now. There's a lot more to it, but I guess that was longer than ten seconds. <laughs> that was your ten second life story. <laughs> <laughs> that took us about forty five minutes. <laughs> right. It was interesting, though. So you mentioned when we were talking about topics, the reality of human society. Do you think that you have a different view of the reality of human society? Yeah. Based on studying the classics of political theory and philosophy, uh, I am a Christian anarchist. Okay. Uh, which, for me, does not mean Molotov cocktails. Good. But, <laughs> but means uh, hope. And also being really sincere about trying to make the kingdom of God available on earth. So uh, why is that anarchy? So what that means to me is that ultimately the best thing for human beings is to not have government. Okay. Uh, people don't want to not have government now. Yeah. And that's okay. I'm not a militant anarchist. <laughs> right. I'm a pragmatic anarchist. So I want to move towards whatever is the closest to uh, everybody being responsible, autonomous agents out of what is available, which would be, I mean, democracy is better than a totalitarian dictatorship. Right. Uh, some form of socialism is probably good for a lot of people. Right. Um, but stratified class systems and systematic oppression are not good, are not good. for <laughs> most people. <laughs> yeah, most people are not down with that. Uh, so, yeah, for me, it's about hope, and it's about the belief that uh, ultimately we're evolving in that direction. Towards no, go no government? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. to where government or what stands in the place of government is just systems of logistics, just organizations for the movement of materials and facilities for, you know, medicine, emergency response. Okay, so just infrastructure. Just infrastructure, yeah. But nobody, you think, like, no, nobody, like, running the government or anything like that. Everybody's just right. autonomous, No, no military, said. no justice system. And so what happens when people don't autonomously self-regulate? This. What do you mean? We've got it. I mean, the government that we have is the government that we deserve. It's the government that we asked for and abide by. Well, I don't know. Yes and no. Exactly. <laughs> But, I mean, if you're saying there's no government, 
I mean, right now we have the we have this government because you know we know what happens when somebody doesn't follow the hopeful autonomous you know, managing of their life and not hurting other people. I guess it's uh, all rhetoric, though. What I mean, do you mean? It's all it's all based on the this model of scarcity, and it's all based on fear. Government I mean, is. Yeah, and the military. I mean, we we have a military because we buy into this idea that if we don't have a military, someone is going to take over the country. Right. Um, and that may or may not be true. Yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, I think, you know, in the same regard, it's um, we have laws because somebody might try to violate our... Right, so we think that we need to have a justice system in order to not get murdered. Actually, we can still get murdered. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have it there to not get murdered. The justice system does not actually prevent crime. Right. It punishes crime. Uh, Well, hopefully it deters some crime. You don't think so? I mean, I agree with you. We're not going to, you know, it's definitely not going to solve murder. I actually don't. I think it actually um, creates as much crime as it deters. Okay. How how so? Well, imagine that you are... Uh, going through a rough patch and on the verge of homelessness. Okay. And you get arrested and heavily taxed for being indigent. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're in a much worse situation than you thought you were in when you thought that you were in the worst possible situation (laughs) you could be in. Right. (laughs) Now you're homeless with a large amount of debt. Homelessness is illegal in Denver, uh, which means that you can be fined and arrested for not having a Uh physical address. And so I do see that people who are in more desperate circumstances are more likely to commit crimes in order to To get by. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. And you think overall our government causes more of that than it prevents. Yes. I think that uh, drugs, for example, are highly overregulated. Prostitution for example, uh, just making it completely illegal rather than having regulations that protect women's health and people's health does more harm than good. It works out better, and we've, we can look at places where these things are decriminalized and it's safer, Right. and it's not creating this, this culture of violence. It doesn't automatically become associated with other worser crimes. Right. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I agree with you on that. I'm just not sure about the no no government at all. I it's, mean, a, it's a far-fetched utopian dream. Right. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Right. But, like, um, I mean, in that situation, what happens if somebody does commit murder? They are just... We decide. What do you mean? We the people? We who's around. I mean, what's the actual circumstances? Uh, so the ancient Greek tragedy, the Furies, uh, has Athena uh, showing up at the very end of it, instituting the criminal justice system. Okay. Um, which is like sort of the symbolic etiology of the origin of the justice system All um, right. in the golden age of Greece. Uh, and I, I find it to be very interesting because she states very clearly that the reason for the justice system is to prevent vengeance the idea being that in the state of nature or whatever uh when someone murders your family member 
then you just go ahead and murder a couple of their family members and then <laughs> they come back and like burn down your farm and right it just accelerates goes on and on in this cycle of vengeance whereas a justice system comes in and says well look this is the crime this is what we all agreed is the punishment for it and that's it right it's done okay and that actually i mean that kind of idea is at the basis of jurisprudence even modern jurisprudence right um although people don't agree about that i mean some people think, oh, we have to punish people. Some people think we have to rehabilitate people. Some people think that it's there for a deterrent to keep people from doing crimes. Right. Um, I think it largely becomes an instrument of oppression and a system of taxation. Okay. Um, and also a system of slavery. So I, I, I guess, I, I mean, I don't really get what you mean in terms of murderers. How is it a system of oppression? Or slavery if somebody's being punished or rehabilitated or a, a lot of the products that are manufactured in this country are manufactured by prisoners in prison right and they're getting paid like nothing virtually nothing okay right. and and they have no choice okay which that's what makes it slavery and most of the people that are in prisons are not there because they're serial killers a right. lot of the people that are in prisons are in prisons because uh, maybe they're addicted to drugs and black. Right. That is true. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's a lot, I guess, I, obviously a lot bigger issue to, to say that it should be done away with. Obviously, you've thought about this a lot more than I have. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I do, as just a regular citizen, feel like the government is necessary for certain things. Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of reforms that need to take place in terms of, like, the things you're describing. But I do kind of feel like, like you said, you know, we're never stopping murder. That's never going to happen, no matter what. And, <laughs> you know, even if we control guns or all of that stuff, but it's like, I mean, we can't, I, I, I don't know, I feel like we can't really just let murderers go, go you know, I, I think the, that I think fine. the way that we minimize uh, violent crime is by shifting out of a, a fear-based model of scarcity and towards a model of uh, sharing and collaboration and abundance. Right. Um, out of the recognition that there are, in fact, enough resources to go around if they are distributed equitably. And right. when people have what they need, that's when they're less likely to commit violent crimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. So I guess I'm just getting a picture near of this Christian anarchist Mm -hmm. and this model of hope you're talking about. So, I mean, it sounds like what it's saying is we're hoping we could get, like you said, a utopian society of people who just have what they need and therefore don't feel the need to violate other people right. because they're satisfied. And that is the, the goal of Christian anarchy, is uh, that? Because, because we have enough and also because we're emotionally and intellectually satisfied. I mean, education is a huge component as well. When people yeah. are more literate, uh, people are less likely to do stupid things. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And the idea of, like, if everyone feels, um, you know, loved and supported and respected you know, physically and emotionally, they're going to not be angry and not want to lash out at, at much as society. I mean, I... I I certainly agree with that. I think that that's one of the major issues 
in our country today with like all of this gun violence. I mean, if you look at that, like the, the common denominator in most of these mass killings is somebody who feels isolated and alone and disrespected and unsupported mm -hmm. for one reason or another. So I definitely agree with that aspect of it. But it is an interesting theory. I mean, uh, I've never heard of this theory of Christian anarchy before. Uh, Leo Tolstoy uh, wrote a lot of philosophical and theological writings, not just epic literature. And my viewpoint is very much in line with his, uh, except that I live in a world that includes supernatural elements. And he did not? He did not. Uh, Tolstoy believed in God, but did not believe in miracles. Okay. Why? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Uh, I think uh, he felt that that was the rational position. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you believe in God, does, isn't that automatically sort of supernatural? I, I think it, I think it was the end of uh, the critique of practical reason, where Immanuel Kant kind of concludes with uh, this proposition that there are three fundamental questions that every human being wants to know the answer to, but cannot achieve certain knowledge about through reason alone. Okay. Which are, does God exist? Are humans free? Like the question of free will. Right. And is there an immortal soul or are people mortal? Right. And so kind of coming out of that enlightenment background, I think Tolstoy decided humans are free. God does exist. And the soul is not immortal. Okay. Um, so there was just kind of a climate where that sort of thinking could be articulated. And I, that viewpoint has some really interesting consequences. And I was definitely much more sympathetic to that viewpoint a couple of years ago, uh, particularly before working at the hospital. And what changed? Uh, being with people who were dying. So you're, I mean, I assume you're saying that the, you just disagree with the last one that weren't, I mean, I assume you mean God exists. There is another world. Yeah. And, uh, people are immortal pass. Well, maybe not immortal, but we pass on to another plane of being, uh, rather than just ceasing, ceasing to exist. Right. See, I agree with that a hundred percent. I don't believe in God though. I believe, cool. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe in more of like, science and spirituality which you know I, I don't I don't I don't believe in God I don't believe in organized religion but I do believe that there's a creator there's a life force that's bigger than us and I believe that there is much more that we obviously don't know than we do know mm -hmm. and that um, you know opens all, all kinds of possibilities obviously I, I believe in the supernatural I believe that there is a soul and an immortal part of ourselves that mm -hmm. moves into like another dimension or something like that and that we continue to exist on another plane cool as you're saying but cool obviously coming at it from a different you know from, i'm coming at it from more of the non-religious viewpoint i was raised catholic in a non, very non-practicing uh -huh. family we went to church you know i i mean i would say once or twice in my life just for the sake of going to church as a, as a child growing up. Uh -huh. And, you know, I went to a college in upstate New York that was a Catholic-affiliated college, and it was, um, you know, we had friars living on campus, and I, you know, tried to get into 
uh, my Catholicism more and really try and make a connection. And I did for a couple of years. I mean, mm -hmm. I, but you know, to me, it was not something that I really ever like truly related to or connected to. But you know, later in the past, probably few years. And, you know, for a while, I just, I don't know, I, I was like, maybe I'm, I'm agnostic. I never really thought of myself as an atheist. I never felt mm -hmm. like there was nothing. There was, you know, something that created us. Um, and, yeah, probably in the past, I don't know, five to ten years or so, I've gotten a lot more in touch with spirituality and just, like, the meaning of faith mm -hmm. and um, all of those kinds of things. And I do feel like... I have a much more, uh, a, a much stronger connection with spirituality. Um, but I do, I do really believe that science is what explains the universe. I mean, I think nature is what created us, and nature is our is our creator. I mean, that, to me, that that makes perfect sense. Um, and it also, to me, explains you know, uh, immortality and, you know, moving on to another dimension or having, you know, an, a timeless part of ourselves, an energy that has to live on. Well, physical science doesn't. What do you mean? I mean, I think... Physics, physics does not uh, deal much with... Conscious, our, well, with our, the soul. Our spirit. No, it doesn't, but I think the fact that, the, like, consciousness is unexplained... Mm -hmm. Still in physical science, and well, that to me is that's our, not is the our realm of physical science. The physical science is not responsible for explaining consciousness. See, I mean, I think consciousness is not a physical body. No, I agree with that, but I mean, I think you know, natural science explains it. I mean, I am for natural science. I mean, I think natural I'm, science I'm in the it. sense of we, we have a conscience. We can all agree on Well, actually, we can't all agree on that. Some we people don't. don't believe there's a soul. I mean, I believe your conscience and your soul are kind of the same thing. Some people don't even believe in a soul or anything like that. Right. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know how you deny that you, <laughs> you have a conscience or there's this mysterious part of ourselves that, you know, science still can't explain or, this, you know, the science that we have available to us. Mm -hmm. Still can't explain. Uh, now, you keep saying conscience, but you mean consciousness. Consciousness, yeah. Yeah, okay. Just clarify. Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. I, I believe that uh, good science and good theology enhance each other. Yeah. Uh, and there's not a lot of good theology around these days. There's a lot of good science, but science itself is kind of ill because it's uh, reigned so uh, tightly into technology um it's so much about economics yeah and war i suppose yeah which I mean, ties back into it's being informed by bad theology how so well i feel like the best science that we could have would be informed and motivated by curiosity and wonder and the beauty of the natural world yeah whereas science I feel is currently motivated a lot, not in all disciplines, but is motivated a lot by uh, money. Right. And the money is in uh, technologies that can be commercialized and technologies that can be used to destroy people. Right, I think that's true. Which is unhealthy in my view. Yeah, no, that's definitely unhealthy. You, you mentioned organized religion 
and as distinct from spirituality. And I agree, a lot of times organized religion is an instrument that is used to control people. And it's not right. it's not a life affirming, inspiring story right. that is being spun. But it's a it's a fear mongering attempt to get people to believe and behave in certain ways. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so I, I feel that maybe a lot of times people are brought to sort of a staunch atheism because they're rejecting that. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't don't really make that connection. Yeah, it's either I believe in religion or I don't believe in God at all. Right. And yeah, I definitely think those two things are distinct. I mean, like, I, I, I when I say I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, the God of my Catholic upbringing. Right. That's, you know, in the sky and looking down upon us and giving us all these rules to live by and things like that. Like, I think, you know, as I said, it's whatever that life force is, nature, um, that created us. And, um, yeah, like the rules are be a good person. <laughs> Don't hurt other people. Those are the, those are the rules, you know, and that's it. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that kind of goes into what you were saying before about, you know, the utopian society where everybody is just understanding that, you know, we should be good to each other. And so they are. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you have to come from any particular faith tradition in order to achieve the understanding that it's better when we help each other out right. than when we actively seek to harm each other. Right. <laughs> right. You shouldn't have to <laughs> need a, a tradition, a faith tradition, in order to come to that. I agree. That should be something that is natural in humans. <laughs> and I think it is. I think it is, too. Yeah. I mean, so in that view, I guess for me it's hard to like think about framing it into a religion. You know what I mean? I, I believe in like the basic structure of religion, you know, like the father, the son and the Holy spirit. Like I get that there's a creator, there's a human manifestation of you, what, how you're supposed to act on earth and act towards other people. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a spirit, a, a conscience, a part of ourselves that consciousness. Consciousness. Did I say that again? Conscience. Conscience. Sorry. Yeah. It's your Jesuit training. Is it? <laughs> I don't even know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really do believe that organized religion is, you know, some, some for a story that comes out of that sort of basic structure of spirituality. There are these three aspects of human existence which you know it's yeah, where did we come from what, what, how, how should we behave towards other people how should we behave here on earth mm -hmm. what happens after that you know or what what's you know where do we where, how, yeah i don't know what you would call it or individuality or, or creative spirit mm -hmm. um but it's very hard for me to you know think about that in terms of yeah like you're saying like this set of rules that you have to follow in order to be accepted as a good person you know what I mean? So I don't know. I guess my question is kind of like, how do you sort of reconcile those two things? You know, like, how, 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 do you, how does religion work for you if you're kind of agreeing with what I'm saying? I so, guess is the question. So for me, religion is a cultural practice or habit, and it's a way of organizing uh, community. So in your religion, you meet once a week right. and you rehearse certain stories 
that you've been carrying for generations right. and interpreting for generations. And that's a way of community building, right? which can be good. Yeah. Uh, it also can be dangerous when a community uh, feels vulnerable and sort of locks on to uh, dogmatism or a fundamentalism right. or like a very rigid doctrine. Uh, and then especially when we say something like anyone who isn't in the know or right with this orthodoxy is condemned. Right. It's not just outside of this community, but outside of the world of the living. Right. Outside of people we accept as. At all. Yeah. And that can justify genocide. And has many times. Slavery. Right. I mean, I think of that in the same way you're talking Anything. about government. I mean, it, sometimes it, it it's causes a lot of issues, more issues than it solves in terms of like, yeah, if you think about all the the wars that have been begun and are still ongoing because of religion. And I think that it, that comes from a from a place of fear and anxiety. Agreed. And an incapacity to allow the creation to be as big and diverse as it really is. Maybe a certain wooziness at the precipice of understanding yeah. to where you're like, oh shit, is the universe completely <laughs> infinite in every way? <laughs> like, that's too much. It's too mind-blowing. But we should be able to, and I think, I think we are able to when we've achieved more of our development as human beings, we should be able to say, you look at the universe in a different way than I do, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I that's don't, I exactly. don't need to pretend that I'm right about everything and know everything. Right, and see, that to <laughs> me, though, is the main problem with organized religion, is that I, that's how I feel about it. This right. is what I believe about the universe. You obviously have a different story of where we came from. You have every right to believe that story. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, that's the part I don't get. The part where it's like, no, you need to believe what I believe because this is what I believe and I'm right. Right. You know, I mean, it's to me that <laughs> that makes no sense to even have a story that you're so positive about, about where the universe came from. I mean, like, again, I believe the story of, you know, I believe in my spirituality. I believe that's accurate. But that's because it just, it makes sense to me. And it's a way of, you know, uh, acknowledging to me that the world is infinite and all of that is infinite and compartmentalizing it. But like, it doesn't make any sense in my head to, uh, I, I guess, not, not, you know, to have a story that, and be so positive about it. Right. You know, that to me is what organized religion sort of teaches. It's like, this is it this is the story of where we came from and you need to believe it and you need to follow these rules and it, it just does not allow for the possibility that they're incorrect in some religions. Right. And the way that I articulated that kind of vulnerability or anxiety in a community a moment ago is I guess only part of the story because uh, Christianity in particular was appropriated by the Roman Empire early on and consciously used as an instrument for domination. Okay. Um, Islam also is very political. Right. Uh, and it has been for a very long time. And so 
it's interesting when we think about what you were just saying and that for most of the people, we're interested in what happens when we die. Right. What does this mean? Yeah. But for the framers of religion, they're saying, what can I do with this system of organizing humans? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> How do I need to answer those questions for the people in order to get them to do what I want them to? Right. Well, again, I mean, that's like another reason organized religion doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you're just following this story that somebody gave you. So it's a, I think it's important there to ask organized by who. Right. Uh, here in the UCC, which comes out of the Congregationalist tradition, um, the ultimate authority is not at the national level, but at the congregational level. So each congregation actually makes its own decisions about how to do its polity and about what it believes. Okay. Um, but there's a strong thread of like freedom of conscience. Okay. Um, and the importance of every individual being able to decide what they believe for themselves. And then as a community, as a congregation, they uh, attempt to achieve consensus about how they are going to be as a community. So there's no oh, okay. mother church that's handing down uh, doctrine right. or rules for how that has to community happen. needs to be. That makes more sense. So it's not, organized religion is not all organized the way that Rome is. Okay. Eastern Orthodoxy separated from the Roman church a long time ago for a number of reasons. Okay. But they have a different organization. And then the Protestants separated from Rome a few hundred years ago. Right. For some similar reasons, actually, uh, like not being so staunch about celibacy or thinking of celibacy as this like sacred thing that we should be striving for. Right. For example. Yeah. So organized religion is very problematic. I would agree. <laughs> it's also something that people in communities just sort of spontaneously do. I think a lot of faith traditions have mystical and visionary roots. Right. And then they get uh, taken up. Those stories get sort of codified and canonized by, by people in community. Right. And if it gets big enough, then the dominant empire starts using it. They start getting in there. Yeah. Because here's communities that are organized. And willing to listen. Mm-hmm. So it's like a pre, it's a pre-built infrastructure for speaking to the people. It is. And I think on the individual level, I mean, at least, you know, in my experience, in my generation, it's just an automatic, you know, it's a, it's a given. Well, I'm Catholic because I was raised Catholic and I've got kids. I've got to baptize them because what am I going to do? Not baptize them. Right. You know, and it's <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, or, or that, <laughs> you know, and it's just mm. even had friends who were baptizing their kids because, you know, that's what their parents would have wanted. They don't want to go against their parents or stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, again, I think that's where it becomes dangerous where it's like, I'm just following this because I'm supposed to. And like some people, I, I'm not certainly not saying everybody, but I think there are people who just don't think about it and don't try to come to their own answers uh, right. of it, you know, in, unless they fit into the box. And they think of it, you know, as you're saying, in terms of, well, it's easing my mind about death. 
Mm-hmm. I'm, That's a big one. Yeah. I mean, it's a way to explain what happens after. And I don't have to worry about dying because there's heaven and I'll be there. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, I believe in an afterlife, <laughs> but, you know, I don't revolve my spirituality around what's going to happen next. I, re- you know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. I'm trying to concentrate on what's happening here. Um, Good. <laughs> But I, I think a lot of people don't, you know, they just don't really think about it. Oh, this is this is it. This is how the world was created. And uh, that's going to mm-hmm. happen when I die. And I'm just going to put it off. Hey, I'm going to live <laughs> within the parameters as much as possible. I mean, right. you know, most Catholics I've known in my generation do not follow all the rules of the church and don't, you know, really necessarily even go to church on a regular basis. But right. they consider themselves Catholics because, you know, they believe in heaven. And and that's about the extent of the thought they give it. You know, mm-hmm. which I think, again, is is dangerous because it just sort of perpetuates that view of like, well, this is my, ver- you know, this is how the earth started, and anybody who believes differently is an outsider or whatever or worse. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I I don't know. I don't I don't feel like the way it is today is really necessarily encouraging goodness. <laughs> As much as it's encouraging, you know, the, the more base aspects. I was checking this out yesterday because somebody uh, put up a Facebook post and I gave it a second glance and I was like, wait, is that really true? So I looked up the demographics and it's kind of astonishing, but apparently 90% of the people in this country identify as Christian. 90%? Wow. 90%. That is high. <laughs> um, only slightly more than half of them go to church. Okay. What percentage ever. of them think this is a Christian nation? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> That's always fascinating to me, too. I'm curious about that as well. Um, but it breaks down uh, roughly into thirds between uh, Protestant denominations like this one. Okay. And evangelicals and Catholics. Oh, really? The Catholic Church is like 26% of that 90%. Oh, wow. Um, And denominations like this one and the Catholics are each slightly smaller than the evangelicals. Okay. Um, In the 70s, there was a political alignment between evangelical Christianity and Catholicism. Okay. Uh, And that mostly revolved around stuff like uh being pro-life right and that has shifted uh and it's shifted dramatically recently and the the sort of social justice side of catholicism is really coming to the fore um especially with pope francis right which is very much in line with the other protestants yeah and that's really the first time in my lifetime that i think that has been the case thanks to pope francis yeah, so that's a that's actually a, a sea change, yeah, um, in American politics, yeah, and it's kind of not obvious. It's I mean, we don't talk about how how connected politics and religion really are, but when you think, my God, ninety percent yeah of people in this country consider themselves Christian. That's yeah, a, that's well, a vast majority. Yeah, that is a vast majority. <laughs> and that's why I was asking about how what's the percentage that think it's a Christian nation. I mean, I think there are. I think it's probably pretty high the number of people who seriously believe that this is a Christian nation. 
because it says in God we trust on our money. I mean, so the... the so freedom of religion doesn't matter. The founders of the country were Christians, but they were not Christians like any of those groups that I just mentioned. Right. They were Christians like wealthy, landed, enlightened gentry are Christians and deists. They right. are individualists. They believe very much in like self-determination and freedom of conscience and yeah, and obviously freedom of religion <laughs> freedom of religion right because that was a big deal back then it's like but we that, don't want to follow the king's church right but again i don't know i mean it's like we're taking our religion and, and and i believe so strongly in this christianity that it's like i i believe that those founders who were christians even though they said freedom of religion and everyone's equal and you know pursuit of happiness mm-hmm we're a Christian nation still. Uh, I mean, separation of church and state. Like, I think to me, that's a, that's an issue with religion more so than it's an issue of government that there are any people in America who believe this is a Christian nation, let alone a probably sizable chunk who believe it's a Christian nation. I mean, that to me is just, I don't know what you'd call it. Just blind, blind. I don't know. It's, it's beyond blind faith. It's <laughs> my faith is so encompassing that I've taken over the country with it mm-hmm. when there's, you know, zero evidence that this is a Christian nation. But the framers of the constitution who were Christian were certainly not fundamentalists. Right. They read more books than just the books in the Bible. Right. A lot more. They were highly, highly educated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is why they were able to <laughs> develop a nation that had freedom of religion, even though they were Christian. You know, they could see right. outside of their own faith and see that we still want a place where everyone can choose their own freedom and choose to live as however they want, mm-hmm. even though we believe in Christianity. And then, you know, to, to, to then look at that as a Christian today and say, no, because they were Christian, this is Christian. Because I'm a Christian, this is Christian. To me is, um, I don't know, dangerous, I guess. It's just, you know, again, taking religion over uh, reality. I mean, the reality is we have freedom of religion in this country, which that alone is all the evidence you need that this is not a Christian nation. It, it is a nation that is evidently comprised of many Christians and also people who are not Christian. Right. This is a very progressive congregation. Uh, and we have been open and affirming for over 20 years. Uh, the open and affirming project, if you will, is a system that was developed within the United Church of Christ in order to educate and invite congregations to think about their relationship with the LGBTQ community. Okay. Uh, And it's sort of a way of moving in the direction of and then ultimately affirming that... uh, we are open and affirming of okay. gays, lesbians, transgender, queer, bisexual people. Right. People with different uh, sexual orientations and uh, identities, which has been a very long and fraught conversation in religion. Right. Uh, and it's a conversation that I have ongoingly. People 
approach me here at the church. People write emails to the office asking about it. And we also have a rainbow flag on the front of the building. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. We had a larger one that was on the marquee, and it was taken down. Okay. And I put it back up, and then it was broken off and stolen. Okay. And so we got another one, and that's why it's up high on the front of the building. And I like to put somewhat provocative messages on the marquee yeah. when I can. Uh, and they do provoke. Right. Such as? Such as uh, law is not the same thing as justice. Um, Black Lives Matter right. was changed by a concerned citizen to all lives matter, or rather all lives matter <laughs> because they didn't have two L's. <laughs> Oh, they just took the AL from black. Yeah. Nice. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at which point I got into a rather heated Facebook conversation right. about that. Yeah. So I was like, hey, look, guys, somebody changed the marquee. Right. Which is kind of bold, I guess. Uh, and then one of my Facebook friends got into it with me. Right. <laughs> about, well, that's great. I'm glad that they took the initiative and we're being so creative and more universally embracing of all people. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so we had to have I a really talk know. about that and kind of explain the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. That is a big question I think that a lot of people have. Like why, why isn't it all lives matter? So it does need explanation. Someone painted on the front of the church a couple of weeks ago, all lives matter. Yeah. Who uh, is... 40 feet long oh my god uh and i think that speaks to the mindset because you're not entering into dialogue you are defacing a community center right and that's a different kind of activity than expressing your viewpoint <laughs> and right explaining sure. your position rationally right and i mean i think it's just saying like you know you can't i don't i don't know what it's trying to say you can't be special like there's no yeah acknowledgement of why black lives matter exists right and and it's cowardly and hateful yeah i mean to do something like that right for sure i mean to, to actually take the time to yeah, prepare and go to a church and, <laughs> and put that on there in the, you know, in the name of, of hate, I would say. That's not somebody who's trying to be inclusionary in the right. sense of like. Right. It's a, it's a violent thing to do. Right. And it, I, mean, I like to joke that uh, all lives matter except for mine because I had to spend four and a half hours cleaning it off instead of playing with my kids. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, how how is that helping the situation at all to go and write that? It's just, you, you, I mean, it's basically proclaiming that you are, are not, again, acknowledging what's happening in the black community. Right. Uh, someone also wrote on the marquee in Magic Marker, Trump, <laughs> twice in two places on there. And yes, that is a great way to get your message across. <laughs> I, I had to spend several hours... Uh, determining what kind of solvent was going to eliminate that. Right. And and there again, I mean, you are using the name of your preferred candidate uh, the way that you would use the F-bomb. <laughs> right. Just to, like, <laughs> be... Antagonistic. 
and yeah, just to, I don't even know what, and I don't, I don't know if the individual that did that is a Trump supporter. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they're just a angsty teenager. Right. But why write that? Just trying to stir up trouble. Yeah. Maybe they just don't know what to write. So that seems to be the, the phrase of the moment. I would not ever imagine that, uh, someone would write Bernie and magic marker on my marquee. (laughs) Yeah. And I am a hundred percent confident that no one would ever spray paint Black Lives Matter on the front of the church. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's just what, uh, again, it's just the same things we've been talking about, you know, like, let's not include people. I mean, saying all lives matter is just a way to is, is to be exclusionary, ironically. <laughs> it's deeply ironic, yes. <laughs> and in another deeply ironic twist at one point on the marquee we had something along the lines of you know we are welcoming of everyone if you are gay or straight or and it was this whole long list that took up the entire marquee yeah (laughs) (laughs) and someone approached me in the alley right here they're riding up on their bicycle and he said who who decides what goes on your sign? Yeah. I was like, I do. <laughs> and he was like, oh. He was like, do you believe that? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Do you actually believe everyone should be included? And he, and he was questioning me about it. And at one point, uh, he said, well, I'm not against gays. I'm gay. But I just don't see how you can write something like that on a sign at a church. Yeah. Which is just totally schizophrenic because this individual has a very conservative religious view that he's attached to. Right. And is also openly gay. Yeah. That. And full of self-hatred. Right. And he That's just... That's a hard thing to pull off. He finally just rode off and turned around as he was riding off and said, shame on you. Yeah. I mean, that to me is all internal. He obviously, like you're saying, I mean, feels so much shame himself. I mean, I'm surprised that he was even able to be openly gay if he feels that way. Well, and but how common is it for really conservative uh, Republican evangelicals to be uh, hiring cowboys when they're at Davis or in Las Vegas or whatever? I mean, that kind of stuff comes out all the time. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's like, those are the people who are, I I used to do a stand-up joke about that, about how, you know, obviously anyone you see on TV talking, you know, talking about how gay people are the spawn of the devil is like, you're just basically announcing that you're gay, (laughs) you know, like, right. I mean, it's like, I'm sorry you have to come out that way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry that you cannot accept reality, but yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of self-loathing people for whatever reason whether they're homosexual or whatever the reason is and again because of religion Mm -hmm. i mean and so that guy is saying you know my my religion does not accept me how how is it that you're able to accept everyone i don't know it's just to me that's all just internal (laughs) internal shame you know you can't accept yourself then you can't accept other people being accepted but that's why, to me, like, I don't understand how he became openly gay. And that, that's, the, that's the weird part. It is weird. That he would be openly gay. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was open with me in that moment. But maybe that was his whole coming out just there. 
Maybe that's the first time he ever said it out loud. Yeah, maybe he just felt like it were somebody who would be able to hear it. Mm-hmm. That would make more sense. It's totally possible, but I will tell you that the entire time that he was talking to me, I was watching him very carefully because I was afraid that he was going to pull out a gun or something. Oh, really? Why? Because he was like uh, really shaky and approaching me in a very indirect and not completely rational way. Oh, really? Well, you know, that goes back to my earlier point, which, uh, you know, a lot of these shootings that go on are people that are feeling isolated and feeling excluded and unsupported. I mean, like guy who was the shooter in Orlando, I mean, I think that's kind of obvious that, you know, there were reports that he was in the closet and was really gay and, you know, <laughs> went out and shot up a, a gay nightclub because of his feelings of, you know, n- uh, not being able to be true to who he was and feeling mm-hmm. hatred for people who could. Yep. And also, when something like that happens, it's just as likely that they are Islamic fundamentalists or Christian fundamentalists. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's all, uh, to me, if you're, if you're absolute about anything that is a a giant unanswered question of the universe, (laughs) you're a fundamentalist. I feel the same thing about atheists, and I've had these conversations with a friend of mine who's an atheist. I'm like, you are fundamentally religious, even though you don't follow an organized religion. Like, if you are 100% positive that there is no God, 100% positive that there is no afterlife, how is that different from being 100% positive that there is a God and 100% positive that there is a heaven? Right. I mean, if, you, if you're not allowing for the fact that we all know that these questions are unanswered and nobody has the right answer, but you're positive of the answer, you're a fundamentalist. I, I agree. The, the argument there is that um, lacking any evidence, why posit the existence of, if you, right. don't, if you don't directly encounter some phenomena, I, then, I, I mean, I get then it. why... I, I mean, I get atheism in the same way I get religious faith, but it's the same reason I say, like, you know, my spirituality makes perfect sense to me, and I think it's accurate, mm-hmm. but I accept the fact that it works for me, <laughs> and that other people have very different ideas about right. where we came from, and where we're going, and what we're doing here, and I have no choice but to accept that, because there are no answers. There is no answer about any of those questions that's definitive. And so for anyone to believe that there is, like, I mean, yeah, there's no evidence that God, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there is evidence exactly. of an afterlife and evidence of a God. Yes, it's not quote unquote scientifically proven, but I think there's plenty of firsthand experience that would indicate that something happens after we die and you know as opposed to us just dying and that being the end of it exactly and that's where that argument falls down is because yes we do encounter that question right it is a given people around us all the time are asking that question and we encounter people directly or indirectly who say i've seen it right i have directly encountered it yeah you know and you know just because you haven't been to australia isn't a reason to think that it's not there necessarily. <laughs> right. I mean, it may not be. <laughs> exactly. I've never been to Australia. It may be a figment of our imagination. I did see some Australian movies, though. 
I've met some Australians. Me too. But yeah, I think for religion, I guess, I just feel like we all have to accept that we can't prove that we're right. (laughs) You know, that to me is a given of religion and of spirituality is that, you know, believe what makes sense to you, but also understand that you are, you know, cannot be proven correct. (laughs) And and you're not, you don't have the only set of eyes on this. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, that's the part. And again, that same question, like if, if God only likes Christians and what are the other people doing here? Like why bother? I mean, was that just for decoration? (laughs) What was he doing? Right. Well, and also human civilization has mostly been pre-Christian. I mean, we've been here for what, 20,000 years. It's got to be all, you know, cut and dry. Some people just need answers. They just don't like lingering, <laughs> lingering well, questions. It's, I mean, it's deeply frustrating that we haven't fixed more of the social ills than we have in the 21st century. Yes. But it's also heartening that we have done so It is much. heartening. I, I mean, mean, the thing that really is the most disheartening to me is that the only reason we've had to do that and the only reason we haven't accomplished more is because there are people who are just so convinced that their way is the correct way to live that nothing else can happen it's just a change of perception you know that's the thing that is so disheartening to me is that racism all this hatred is just a choice you're making and you know yes it sounds incredibly naive but if everybody decided not to hate (laughs) and everybody said you know what that person is not inferior to me just because his skin is a different color. Racism will be solved. <laughs> I mean, that's the part that's disheartening to me. It's like your, your, your insistence on the fact that you're a better person than whoever else you're talking about is the reason we have the issues we have. That's it. But it's, it's not an intellectual decision, I don't think. I don't think but it's But it a, should be. Well, sure. But it's... But there's real fear there. Um, but there's a, there, are, there are a lot of people who are afraid that someone who looks different or believes differently than they do are going to hurt them. Right. They believe that, but that's right. irrational. I right. mean, there's just sure. as much chance as somebody who does look like you hurting you. More so. Right. Because I mean, you're hanging out with them. Right. <laughs> right. Most people are murdered by a family member. Exactly. <laughs> you know I mean, like. Because they're around. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, yeah, you could go around saying, well, I'm going to be a racist because I'm afraid. But, like, you could also go around and say, I'm going to accept you as equal because you're a person. <laughs> and. Right. You know, I mean, I, I think it's an, a non-intellectual decision to, you know, abide by those things and to live your life according to the idea that you're better than other people. But it, it should be an intellectual decision. It should be a choice you're making. I mean, you are, as an adult, are saying, I actively believe I'm better than entire subgroups of people. And mm-hmm. I'm going to act based on that thought that I have. Right. You know, where you, you can just as easily, maybe you haven't been programmed this way, but if you wanted to, <laughs> racists of America, you could say just as easily, this person is equal to me because they're a human being. The color of their skin has nothing to do with their worth as a person. Or their beliefs or their culture. Exactly. Or right. You, you could be making any- that intellectual decision to say, 
you know, in reality, I am not better than an entire race of people. <laughs> so I'm going to treat them as though they're just people. And racism would be solved. <laughs> right. But, you know, we have so much programming saying that, you know, they are inferior. And well, on, so that, on that note, we can all adult humans decide to be responsible and, uh, you know, civic-minded right. to the point where we don't need governments. Exactly. I <laughs> can't say exactly. That would be great. But that's why we need government, because there are people walking around going, I'm better than you because I, I have different pigmentation in my skin, or, or I, I believe or different this story that I'm positive about, even though there's no proof, you know? Right. And you don't. Uh, I guess we're both have the same ideal, the ideal society where we're all <laughs> intellectual, rational beings. <laughs> right. Without systematic oppression or stratified class structures or a standing military or... Right. See, all of those things come from the same thing. People who've decided that they're better than others for whatever reason it is, which is generally, I agree, personal insecurity and personal fear. It really has nothing to do with the other people. You've been right. told that you should fear for your life if there's a black person near you. Right. So you do. Right. Uh, you know, I was never told that. I made the rational intellectual decision in my adult life to treat black people as though they are equal human beings as myself. And, um, and that's it. I, I've, <laughs> I've gotten rid of that program. <laughs> I mean, same thing. I was, I was raised Catholic. And again, we didn't go to Catholic church every day. I, I mean, but like I went to a Catholic college. It's like, that's what they told me to believe. As an adult, I made the decision to make up my own mind about it. And that's, and that's what people don't do. That's true. Uh, the weird thing about fear, too, there is that um, fear is afraid of fear. And so it's never going to rationalize itself as fear. It's never going right. to be open or honest about the fact that that's what it is. Right. Because admitting that you're scared is meta-scary. Right, because then you actually have to do something about it. Yeah, and for a moment, you might feel afraid. The kind of fear that we're talking about that motivates those kinds of ideologies and behaviors doesn't necessarily consciously feel afraid. Right. It just feels like reality. This is the way the world is. Maybe, Black people maybe are inferior. Maybe it feels angry, righteously indignant. Yeah. Uh, that's just a form of fear. Right. Or, or rationally wary. I mean, uh, the thing is, like, I just, uh, you know, on a rational level, it just is, to me, it's, it's that simple. It's a decision you're making, you know? You're either, and I agree with you. Yeah. Fear is never going to tell you what it is. And you have to consciously make the decision to address your fear and recognize it as fear. And that's the thing that people never get, a lot of people never get to. They never question it. They just go along with it. And that's what makes it obviously a non-intellectual decision. But I mean, I think as adults, and in order to get to kind of a utopian society that you're talking about, everybody does need to question it and say for themselves, like, is this what I actually believe? Can I actually look at an entire race, their entire religion, entire subgroup of the population and say that I am personally better than every single one of them? I mean, what right. adults can actually right. ask themselves that question and come out with yes as the answer? <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't help when there are powers that are actively exploiting those fears in right. order to divide people. Yes. It's a, it's a developmental achievement. It's a, it's a fullness of maturation as a human being 
to be able to take a broader perspective on things. But you, right. but in order to get there, you have to have your needs met. You have to at least be able to step out of your immediate anxiety, and you have to you have to have certain ideas available to you. I mean, that's why education is so important. Right. You if have you, to feel secure live, in stepping out of that. If you live in a trailer park or in a neighborhood in a, the inner city or on a farm and you've never been anywhere else. Right. And you don't have resources for education where, you know, you're living in a certain culture that has a narrow sort of a mindset it's very hard to make some of those higher order psychological achievements. Right. I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that's very true. And many people have just been told over and over again that, for example, black people are, you know, intellectually inferior or whatever it is. And they just, yeah, they take that as, as fact and they don't, they don't question it once again. Or, but I Or think that women are. Yeah, or that women are, that Jews are, that gays are, uh, the spawn of the devil. <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, I'm like, I feel like, you know, if, if we're saying, like, humans are, I think humans are inherently good. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, you know, on some level, I don't know, maybe not. I guess there are people that do not feel on some level that it's just wrong. Well, no, we have to, <laughs> we have to treat adults like they are responsible agents. That helps them to live into those higher achievements for their own psyche. We have to treat them as if they are responsible for right. those achievements, yeah. that they are responsible for their actions and for their viewpoints. Okay. I'm only saying this because I think it's also important to have compassion for people and to realize yeah. it's not easy for them to come to certain understandings. Yeah, no, I think that's true, especially in the circumstances you're describing and I'm describing where they've never been told anything different and they've never lived outside and gotten a different perspective on things. And I, I see what you're saying about, you know, kind of having a no government and how that would be able to, you know, be achievable in that sense. If everybody took their own personal responsibility and was, you know, not automatically buying into these structures that have been put in place and some of them to exploit our fears Mm -hmm. and just were, individually responsible for their own actions i can i can see what you're saying there yeah yeah but we do we do have to hold people accountable for the viewpoints that they are espousing and we have to assume that they can rationally defend their position up until the point where they tell us that they can't right which is what facebook is for (laughs) (laughs) right facebook hopefully that will be technology that helps end racism another ideal well, this has been a very uh, extremely interesting conversation, in Good. my opinion. Good. I really enjoyed it. Me thank too. you again. And uh, thank you all for listening. Hopefully, we will be chatting with you again soon.